Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for Amber on the Go, Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for an in-depth conversation on the Expert Delphi Consensus Panel, Findings and Recommendations into Healthcare and Assisted Living. I am Diane Sanders-Cepeda, your host, and I am joined by three amazing guests. First, Dr. Cheryl Zimmerman, a University Distinguished Professor and Co-Director of the Program on Aging, Disability, and Long-Term Care at Cecil G. Shep's Center for Health Services Research at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Editor-in-Chief for JAMDA. Next, Douglas Pace, Senior Director of Long-Term and Community-Based Care for the Alzheimer's Association. And finally, Oh, well, um, first, th thank you, Diane. Thank you very much for having us. We did this project because assisted living has changed a lot in the last 20 years. People who know assisted living talk about the people who live in assisted living being like nursing home residents from a decade ago or even longer ago. The acuity level has really increased. Uh, more than half of them have hypertension and depression. A third have COPD and diabetes. There's a lot of comorbid conditions and a lot of conditions that didn't exist before. And, and especially there has been an increase in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. Currently, at least 70% of people living in assisted living have cognitive impairment and 42% have moderate or severe dementia. So there's a lot of care needs, both medical and cognitive, and also affective. I talked about the depression. And what's happened over the years is that assisted living has become the largest provider of residential long-term care in the country, um, especially for people with dementia. And, and that's actually, that's, that's a true um, point that people sometimes say, well, there's a lot more nursing home beds than there are assisted living beds. However, if one looks only at the people who are in nursing homes for long-term care, not for post-acute care, there's actually more long-term people living in assisted living. So currently there's over 800,000 people in the country and about 29,000 different assisted living communities who have medical and mental health care needs. And when assisted living first began, people didn't recognize that there really was need for it to reflect that it was a healthcare setting. People talked a lot about it being a social, more hospitality model of care, which is not the case, but that has been the perception people have had. And assisted living is highly variable. You know, you've seen one assisted living, you've seen one assisted living. Some of them are as small as four beds. Some, some are actually as high as 500 beds. The average is about 33. So most of them aren't really that large. Um, but they're regulated in a lot of very different ways. Across the states, there's like 350 different ways that they're regulated. So we have people with definite medical and mental health care needs. We have people living in these settings that people don't necessarily recognize as providing health care, and they're so variable. 
And then kind of the third thing, adding insult to injury in terms of need, is that there's really limited medical and nursing provider presence. About half of places have an RN or LPN, half don't, half do, but they don't have to. Very few have primary care provided on site. And there's also limited direct care staffing. Um, like 40% or fewer of the states actually even say what a minimum staffing ratio should be for direct care workers. And about a quarter of the assisted living communities across the country require at least 11 hours of training. So there's cognitive, uh, affective, physical needs. These are settings that weren't recognized as healthcare with great variability and currently not a workforce available to really provide necessary medical and mental health care. Can you describe how you did this project? Oh, absolutely, yes. We What we did, and, and really, you know, it came out of the concerns that I just said. Um, and, and what we did was we recognized that if we're going to be um, developing recommendations for medical and mental health care and assisted living, we had to make sure we had the right people around the table to help develop those recommendations and that we had to ground them in what literature was already saying, what regulations were already saying, what, what assisted living communities were already doing. So um, the research side of this group, we looked at literature, regulations, community guidelines, talked to experts in the field. We put together a list of 183 different items that were potentially important to medical and mental health care in assisted living. We then um, had 19 different panelists, some very diverse panelists, um, who then rated, anonymously rated, all 183 items in terms of how important they felt they were to quality of care. They rated them like one to nine, um, not important to very important. And we use standard cut points um, that are used uh, across, across the field for developing consensus recommendations. They also rated the feasibility, the extent to which they felt they were feasible. So, and it's important this is done anonymously because for example, this, this very diverse, um, these panelists, there were clinicians who were there, there were assisted living operators, um, there was representatives of the American Assisted Living Nursing Association, AMDA was, was represented, the Alzheimer's Association, advocates were there, National Consumer Voice. So very, very many diverse constituents, which is really important because you want recommendations that are feasible and fully embrace not just the medical and mental health care needs, but, but what's happening in the field. So the, the anonymity is important because you don't want any one group, such as the clinicians, to be their voice to be overpowering any other group, such as you know the advocates who perhaps might not have been able to have um, as loud of a voice as clinicians would. So, all these 183 items, the panelists went through a few different rounds. They rated each item in terms of its importance to quality care and feasibility. And we went back in a second round and a third round when there was perhaps um, like some some not what was unclear how people were rating them. Did they say they were important? Was it on the cut point? Perhaps the way the item was worded wasn't so clear. So you go back for rounds one, two and more if necessary. Um, and then ultimately, at the end, you see which items uh, came out in the wash in terms of being important, and then which ones achieved consensus, which is at least 75% of the people having rated it as important. So if only a handful rated as important, it doesn't make the cut point. But if you get three quarters saying it was scored seven or more out of a nine, that in standard um, procedures is determined consensus. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Wow. Lizzie Doug, you were panelists. From that perspective, what was your motivation 
And can you share what the process was like? So through the process, personally, I felt this was thought-provoking exercise and the results really interesting. As I was going through something that's always important to me is ensuring that we're thinking about all the different types of assisted living that Cheryl talked about, whether they're small independent owners or large assisted livings run by large corporations across many states. It's important to make sure that when we think about these, that they're feasible um, for all of those different types and also the different states that have varying regulations on acuity and what assisted living providers can do um, in their assisted living. The motivation to participate um, was, I feel strongly, and I know the SEAL board does too, that medical and mental health care are really important for uh, our assisted living residents to provide a holistic experience, both impact overall quality of life and health and well-being. And what's so important is we talk about how important person-centered care is to assisted living and really why it was developed as a model. And that is part of providing that person-centered care is ensuring that their medical and their mental health is being taken care of. And as Cheryl mentioned, the social and medical model were that's really how it kind of started. There were as it as assisted living grew and developed. Um, but that's that social versus medical debate is really over. There's not a separation. The SEAL board feels strongly about that. Um, healthcare is happening in assisted living and instead of kind of shying away from that, embracing it and seeing what we can do to really support our assisted living providers to provide person-centered care that includes medical um, and mental health and supporting residents so they can have that holistic care. Doug, the same question to you. What was your motivation and what was the process like? Sure. Well, thank you, Diane, for the opportunity to be here today. And you know, I think part of my motivation was um, just anytime I can come together with this esteemed group of colleagues to look at where assisted living has been and where it is today and where it's going is just an honor to be a part of it. Um, and as someone who participated in the assisted living work group several years ago during 2001 and 2003, you know, that was a very different process. That's where about 50 national organizations came together. Uh, and actually, that was the group that uh, formed SEAL, the Center for Excellence in Assisted Living. And that group was able to come up with 110 recommendations. But that was a very much of a structured group process. Um, you know, this process was very different. It was great. I'd never participated in a Delphi process before, so I wasn't really sure what to expect. And, you know, Cheryl told us ahead of time that, you know, it's going to take some time to go through and look and rate almost 200 items. And, she was right about that. It was. It took a, a decent amount of time to really thoughtfully think through all of these, but it was certainly worth the investment of time. And I think this process allowed all of the participants to draw from our own unique experiences with assisted living and think about both the importance and the feasibility related to the wide variability, including size, urban and rural settings, and the type of services offered. And I think it's also important to note that many of these recommendations that received high levels of consensus are cross-cutting issues with many other organizations and initiatives. Thank you. I am very excited to know what the recommendations were. Cheryl, can you lead us in that discussion? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to start it out. Um, and I'm especially happy to start it out because I think I speak for all of the 19 panelists and then the, the researchers on the team to say that we were floored 
well, I, I was floored. I think we really were quite, quite surprised because this was such a diverse group of panelists, as I said. Um, and what happened out of 183 items, we achieved consensus on 43 items. There, at least 75% of all of the panelists said that 43 of the 183 items um, were important to quality of care outcomes. And what they did is they rated them, or they rated them, they were within categories. Um, and then again, we're able to kind of look at them within categories. And in a minute, I'll probably let, let um, Doug and Lizzie tell you about some of the specific ones. Um, but the categories is probably helpful to think about it. So you've got some concept of the buckets, so to speak. One of the categories that um, all of the recommendations we grouped them into was um, like the, the community overall, the community and the community demographic. So like with an example being there, did they have a memory care unit or not? I, I mentioned that one first because actually there were no recommendations that were that, there, that achieved consensus that related to the um, descriptive characteristics of the assisted living community. So that in and of itself is really pretty important. Um, the panelists didn't say size was going to matter. They didn't say that it mattered whether they had a memory care unit or not. So that's an important finding because it also means that um, the recommendations are likely um, uh, applicable within all different kinds of settings. So those structures didn't, didn't make a difference. So the five categories in which recommendations were evidenced, um, one of them related to staffing and staff training, Another one of the categories related to nursing and nursing services or related services. Another category related to resident assessment and care planning. A fourth category related to policies and practices. And then the last category related to um, the actual clinicians, medical and mental health clinicians and care. So maybe at this point, I'll let um, Doug and Lindsay tell you about some of the specifics because they can reflect on them for their um, relevance to quality of care outcomes. Well, thanks, Cheryl. I'd be happy to start and, and provide some thoughts around um, some of these that received such consensus and starting with those in the staff and staff training um, and, and starting first with training for any staff on person-centered care. So, you know, it was really exciting to see that 100% of all participants agreed that there should be training for any staff on person-centered care. And, you know, we know that to provide good quality care, it must be focused on a person-centered delivery system versus a staff-directed system. And it's also important to note that all staff, not just direct care staff, are trained in person-centered care. So, you know, this is about complete system transformation, similar to what's being discussed in nursing home reforms like the Moving Forward Nursing Home Coalition and recommendations like the Alzheimer's Association's Dementia Care Practice recommendations that puts the resident at the center of everything, not staff convenience. And to achieve that, it means that every person not only understands, but is trained on how to do that every day. So training on staff, excuse me, training staff on person-centered care helps them to better know the person, and to meet them in their reality, which creates meaningful engagement. And that meaningful engagement creates authentic care relationships. And ultimately, that's what builds a supportive community. You know, it's about providing a consistent routine, putting the person before the task, and using every interaction as an opportunity for engagement. The next area that I wanted to mention was around staff training for dementia and mental illness, which received a 96.5 consensus. You know, and as Cheryl mentioned earlier, over 40% of all residents have Alzheimer's or other dementias. 
So again, it's important that every staff person must be trained in dementia care because all staff have interactions with the residents, including dietary, housekeeping, activity, and others. So the better trained the staff are, the more able they are to provide high quality care, and the knowledge that they have makes them feel more empowered to do their job, which will lead to more retention and less turnover. Another area was around direct care to worker to resident ratio. Now, this also received 100% consensus. Now, this is an area where you still have a lot of work to do, but it's exciting to see that everyone agrees on the importance of this. And Oregon is the first state that has incorporated an acuity-based staffing model into their assisted living regulations, and it's still under development. But once released, I'm hopeful that it can be a blueprint for other states to follow. Now, in the other areas around resident assessment, care planning, and policies and practices, um, using a formal assessment tool for cognition and conducting a formal cognitive assessment as part of the resident assessment, both received almost 85% consensus. Now, according to the Alzheimer's Facts and Figures report, we know that over 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, but many of them don't have a formal diagnosis. So it's vitally important that residents of assisted living who are showing signs of cognitive impairment have a formal assessment, and it's included as part of the resident assessment. And related to that is the importance of having a resident and family present during the assessment and care planning processes, which is a crucial part, again, of person-centered and person-directed care. Now, a couple of other areas I would like to highlight are related to dementia-related behaviors. And we know as a person progresses through the stages of Alzheimer's disease, many times they experience dementia-related behaviors, especially in the middle and late stages of the disease. And instead of using medications to alleviate these behaviors, we now have more evidence that supports the use of non-pharmacological approaches. So sensory practices such as aromatherapy and massage and multisensory stimulation can be effective, and psychosocial practices like reminiscence therapy, music therapy, and pet therapy can really make a big difference in someone's quality of life. And those structured care protocols around mouth care and bathing, for instance, can make those necessary activities a much more pleasant experience. Again, it's about knowing the person, uh, understanding the approach that works best for them. So it's exciting to see the great consensus around several items that address that area. Conducting a standard assessment to determine the cause when a resident is agitated received 89.5% consensus. Having a policy or procedure regarding aggressive or other behaviors received 100% consensus. It really shows how important this issue is in assisted living. And lastly, there's a few areas in the policies and practices area that I want to highlight that include discussions around direct advances that occur for all residents and are documented. It's another area that received 100% consensus. And we know that with Dr. Zimmerman and other researchers' work, that we have a problem in assisted living with the overuse of antipsychotic medications. And several of the recommendations are related to this area. So it's important to the quality of life of residents in assisted living to inform a responsible party when there is a change in status and informing a responsible party when a medication is changed. And it was encouraging to see that there was great consensus on having the resident and or a family consent for a new antipsychotic or opioid medication, and that there's a program or a policy related to gradual dose reduction for psychotropic medications. We'll return to our program after this brief message. 
Do you enjoy AMDA's podcast series? Join AMDA for 2023 to gain access to our live and archived webinars, members-only forum, JAMDA, our monthly journal, e-newsletters, discounts on society resources, networking opportunities, and more. Plus, you'll get a free electronic copy of AMDA's brand new Delirium, Depression, and Dementia Clinical Practice Guide. Learn more and enroll at paltc.org. That's paltc.org. And now back to our podcast. So I'll turn it over to Lindsay and get her thoughts on some of the other important recommendations. Thanks so much, Doug. These recommendations were really incredible. And as Cheryl said, just amazing to see the different stakeholders coming together and agreeing on so many of these. For staffing and staff training, I know Doug said this, but I, I just emphasize it too, is training on person-centered care. It's so important. It is how assisted living was really founded to focus on person-centered care. And if we don't train staff on person-centered care, what it means, how to deliver it, we can't expect them to give it and provide that to the resident. I also, as someone who's really passionate about workforce, healthcare supervisor training and knowledge, we know people leave jobs a lot of times because of a supervisor. And a lot of times it's a lack of training and knowledge of a supervisor. Many times in healthcare, super people get promoted to be a supervisor because they are clinically very good, but they don't have the training and tools around that to help them be an effective leader and a good manager. And so that is incredibly important to, to retention of your staff, but also, again, providing good person-centered care, having a good leader at the helm. On the domain of nurses and related services, uh, I think it is so important about providing those in place and the importance of providing services on site. We saw this during COVID when people couldn't go out, um, you know, people were uh, self-isolating. Um, and it was really important for the assisted livings that were able to provide some of these services in-house. And I don't think a lot of them are going to go back to the old way of always taking someone out to provide services that can be provided in the assisted living. It really reduces contact um, with individuals that may be sick. If you're taking someone to a doctor's office, we know during flu season, you're going to be interacting with people who are sick. And so this helps our AL residents avoid those interactions. And it's not to keep them out of the community. It's to keep them safe. Um, and I think we've just all learned so much around COVID in regards to that and reducing and limiting exposures to illnesses that, you know, have a very different reaction for older adults. A lot of times a, a flu that a younger person will get, they'll get over, but that can end up, you know, really being very difficult or killing the older adult. And then on resident assessment and care planning, something I'm also very passionate about, the resident being there during assessment and care planning. Again, I'm just gonna take this back to person-centered care. An individual should be the absolute center and the focus when the team, which the individual should be, 
looking at and planning their assessment, their care planning, what their goals of care are, just because an individual is nearing the end of their life or is older, doesn't mean that you can't have goals of care or goals, maybe what you wanna do in the assisted living or the care you wanna receive or other assessments, just so incredibly important. And then Doug talked about um, the assessment tool for cognition. And I just wanna mention the use of other formal assessment tools that there was strong um, support of and one that's just really easy to do and and we're not doing it enough not and this really isn't just assisted living this is all of healthcare but we know depression is is very common in older adults um, we're seeing increases during COVID nineteen too and simple screening tools um, exist around screening for depression. And it really is something you can intervene on um, using medications that don't have a lot of side effects, but have a lot of benefit of really helping a person feel better. And we know depression is linked to other physical illnesses and just overall health and well-being. And so I really hope that is one of the recommendations at very least um, that is implemented and people see as something pretty easy to do um, and integrate into their practices and their assisted living. Around policies and practices, Doug brought this up and I just, I know we have a couple overlying things. And again, I think it just underscores how important some of these really are and kind of rise to the top, are informing a responsible party when it's, there's a change in status of a resident. I have a little different reason from Doug, though I agree with his. A lot of times this can start in motion where a person may not be eligible for assisted living anymore, may need a higher level of care in the assisted living, or may need a higher level of care moving to the next level of care, like a skilled nursing facility. And it's important to have those conversations when there's a status change, instead of just all of a sudden telling the family, you know, this person has to move out. Under that individual and the family understanding kind of change in status, it also helps too for staff to be prepared if there is a new higher level of care or needs that an individual has. So it kind of helps facilitate that conversation, which can be hard from both sides, a provider side, a residence um, side and, and the family or responsible party. And then around medical and mental health clinicians and care, that has any mental health care provided on site, again, is so important. And I'm hopeful, and I know this doesn't work for all residents, maybe not those who um, have cognitive impairment, but having mental health care on site or the ability to use telehealth, which we've used a lot in COVID-19, and hopefully that continues, it's just important, again, for access to care. Um, there is a real shortage of geriatric psychiatrists and a lot of times to other healthcare providers, social workers and others that provide mental health services. So any way that we can provide them, bring them into assisted living, whether it's through telehealth or physically coming in and doing a clinic day once a week or once a month, it's just really important to giving access to our assisted living residents to that important healthcare service. And again, it hits home to providing holistic care for that individual. And again, that's person-centered care when you're focusing on all the different areas that can help an individual live well and be well. Thank you, um, Doug and Lizzie, for sharing those examples. Um, I have a question for you, Cheryl, about the feasibility. 
the recommendations sound pretty feasible, but are they? And do we know anything about that? Oh, yeah. A great, great question, Diane, because as I was reflecting, as Doug and Lindsay were talking, um, they do sound very feasible. And, you know, I had said that the panelists did rate whether they thought they were feasible. We we actually had them rate them whether they were feasible in no communities, some communities or all communities. And um, I, I mean, almost I, I, the vast majority of the items, probably more than 95 percent, were rated as being um feasible in at least some communities. And most of them were, were rated as being feasible in, I'd say, at least three quarters of the community. So there was a lot of feeling that these are practical and feasible. And when you listened to the examples, just like you said, I mean, doing a cognitive assessment, having some of these basic policies and protocols in place, in, informing a family if there's change in status so people can prepare for future care needs, they, they sound really feasible, right? And we had data, we had data around that. And another study that we're doing, um, we've got this um, seven state study of seven diverse states, and we had 250 different communities in those seven states, uh, randomly selected to represent their state. And we had data for 26 of the 43 items in terms of were they actually doing them or not. We didn't develop that study based upon um, this Delphi panel recommendations. It was just data that we had separately. Oh, and pre-COVID, by the way, pre-COVID. But a lot of these things like doing an assessment or informing a family, one would hope that those are um, not going to be changed due to COVID and perhaps just even done even that much more. But for the data we had on 26 of these items, over three quarters of them, this is a magic number apparently, but over three quarters of them were being done in more than three quarters of the communities. So speaks to the fact that the, the panelists were really were very mindful about not putting forth, you know, like pie in the sky types of recommendations. But if we're going to do this, we want to recommend something that is that can be done. And our data showed that showed us that it, it could be done. I'd say the one area that is the most challenging, no surprise, is any of the um, recommendations that had anything to do um, with workforce, such as, um, you know, having an, L, uh, uh, an LPN or RNN site. If, if there's no workforce to be able to do that, that's going to be more challenging. And so people are aware of that and, and also recognize that workforce issues differ across the country. Um, and just just as one last point, I, I couldn't help but reflect with Doug and Lindsay um, stressing so much person-centered care, as the panelists did. Um, you know, we're talking about medical and mental health care, and, and it occurs to me that people don't really realize that person-centered care is really very much mental health care, mental well-being. If, if someone isn't providing care in a way that is tailored to a person's own preferences and needs and care is being provided in a way that, that a person wants, that is going to affect their mental health. So very, very basic to think about good care practices are medical and mental health care practices. Well, Lizzie and Doug, now that we have these recommendations, what happens next? Sure, that's that's the big question. Where do we go now? Well, we're excited to have formed a Be Well and AL Coalition. And we had an introductory panel that was recorded and is available. And I know there will be more information on the uh, AMDA website um, as we move forward on how to implement these great recommendations. And I'll just 
kind of talk to you from our SEAL standpoint, Cheryl said it, you know, all these, a lot of these recommendations have to do around our workforce and really where we have the workforce to get that. And before the pandemic, we were facing a serious shortage in all of long-term care. And it's just, it's become a crisis point in many places, unfortunately. And so I think, you know, there's different places to go and impact. And I think one of those is policymakers needing to focus on funding uh, for initiatives to rec recruit clinicians, anything like a loan forgiveness, scholarships, um, for some of our direct care workers, uh, things like apprenticeships, Department of Labor is really focused on getting pre-apprenticeships and apprenticeships out and implemented right now. And other opportunities such as health professionals opportunity grants that works with women who are receiving TANF benefits and healthcare is one of their focus areas um, to help individuals to provide wraparound services so these individuals can be successful um, in these job opportunities. And, you know, we can't forget about providers needing to ensure that their assisted living is providing good jobs and, you know, what is defining of good jobs. But, you know, things like good pay, good pe good benefits, good leadership, asking your staff if you're doing satisfaction surveys with your staff, um, what you can do to be better and make it a workplace that people want to stay. And I think a lot of things and ideas that SEAL can do and, and will probably be a part of is helping to disseminate evidence-based practices and policies that support these recommendations and helping with the implementation, collaborating with researchers to evaluate programs and practices around these recommendations, and really continuing to encourage researchers to ensure all stakeholders are at the table from staff to residents and families, and also making sure that policymakers understand these recommendations and how to develop regulations that and funding if there needs to be funding that makes sense and be able to continue to support AL, whether it's implementing some of these recommendations, helping to get staff to be able to implement these recommendations, all so very important. But I, you know, I'm interested to hear what Doug has to say, but I'm just, I'm excited. I think these recommendations to me are almost like a roadmap or a checklist, which I love a good checklist as a quality improvement person. Um, that we can look at as a profession and say, you know, these are our top issues. How can we start implementing them and supporting ALs to implement them? Well, Lindsay, I would just echo a lot of what you said. You know, we know right now the most important task is around dissemination. So for anyone listening to this podcast, we would encourage you to share this study with your peers and colleagues. And we also need to share these with assisted living providers, you know, because they can crosswalk them against their own operations and they can see where they have concordance and they can see where they have areas for improvement. And as Lindsay mentioned, we also need to share these findings with state and federal policymakers and regulators. So we know every year several states update their assisted living regulations and these recommendations can help inform them on what this panel of experts sees as areas of importance. And state regulators and oversight agencies can also learn a lot from them as well. And since there's a growing number of states who use waivers like 1915C waivers in assisted living, it's important to share these with CMS and ACL and federal policymakers. And finally, we must always remember the residents and their care partners. Sharing this type of information helps inform them 
when they're either choosing a place to reside or if they're in a community, helping them understand that they have a voice, the most important voice in how their care is delivered. Cheryl, Doug, Lizzie, I want to thank you for providing us with this this comprehensive review of, of your findings and recommendations. I know it's going to go a long way um, to help us promote health care and assisted living. Thank you all. Diane, th- thank you very much. And, and thank all the listeners um, who are listening today, because it, as Doug just intimated, it really it, it takes a village and everyone who's listening today has a role in providing and helping to promote these recommendations. So we're grateful for the I, I, I know I'm grateful. I expect Doug and Lindsay are, too, for the opportunity to have shared this with you. And um, thank you very much. And I hope people will join the coalition. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.